thank you, Melanie. You please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter number five. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are on the screen. Otherwise, I do encourage you to open up your your Bible. Mark five. We're going to be reading beginning at verse number one through. I'm sorry, verse number twenty-one through verse forty-three. Mark 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name. And seeking him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter, is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, 
and told them to give her something to eat. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this reading of your word. Lord, your spirit is is all. Apart from his effectual work, I am nothing. So I pray that he would come now and through the voice of your inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word. Speak to our hearts this morning. Change us this morning, today, for the sake of your Son's glory, we ask these things in his name. Amen. When I was in college and, uh, and more recently in seminary, uh, I remember all the preaching classes I've had to take, and, and one thing they always taught us in preaching class was the need to use vivid illustrations. I, I admit, in, in sermons and preaching, I, I am not a very good storyteller. Illustrating does not come naturally to me. In fact, believe it or not, I have actually spent hours, my wife can testify to this, because she'll come, I'll come home and she'll see me throwing stuff around in the house and I've been staring at a computer screen for two hours and I can't even figure out how to start a message. But the awesome thing about preaching through the Gospels is that most of the illustrations are given directly by Jesus and the various encounters that He had with real people just like you and me. In fact, many times the entire sermon itself is an illustration And that's exactly what we have before us in our text today. A real-life illustration of desperation. Desperation. This is something that probably all of us can identify with because at one time or another, we have all felt some degree of desperation in our lives, have we not? But we meet two people in our text today who were experiencing the fullest desperation possible. If something miraculous did not happen, it was the end of the line for either them or someone that they loved. They desperately needed, as Melanie sang this morning, Jesus to come to their rescue. And see, friends, whether we realize it or not, We all, every single one of us here this morning or watching online, we all should feel a sense of desperation, not just in our circumstances, whether physical, financial, or relational, or emotional, or whatever the case, but we should feel a sense of desperation because of our sin. That's where the source of our problem lies. And there we find a great rescue, a great rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's travel back this morning, as we do each Sunday, to the first century and find ourselves here in this great illustration of desperation from Mark 5 as those who, unless we meet Jesus at our deepest point of need, we're done. We're lost. We're hopeless. 
And so, in this text today, we meet two desperate people. First of all, a desperate father. Verse 21, When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. This is, of course, the Sea of Galilee. This is where he spent a great deal of his ministry. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Jesus had calmed the storm. He had delivered the demon-possessed man called Legion. Now he's back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, most likely near his home base of Capernaum, what is known even still to this day as the town of Jesus. And yet another crowd (laughs) has gathered around him. By the way, we see the word crowd five times in this passage. Take note of that. Jesus was surrounded by people. He was surrounded. But there was a man who came running through the crowd and fell at his feet. His name, as we've already been introduced to him by Mark, was Jairus. Mark calls him a ruler of the synagogue, basically the administrator of all the services of the synagogue. He would have actually been the one responsible for securing Jesus to come and teach in the synagogue. We know that Jesus was in this Capernaum synagogue, if this indeed was where Jairus was the ruler. He was likely a a prominent member of the community. But he knew about Jesus because Jesus actually went in flesh and blood. Let's not miss that detail. He was there. He presently was physically there at synagogue. He taught there. He healed there. And this man either personally knew him or had heard about Jesus, this Galilean rabbi who could do wonders unlike anyone that anyone had ever seen. And he came running through the crowd to Jesus. He fell down at his feet, not as the ruler of the synagogue, but as a desperate father. Verse 23, he implored Jesus earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. We know in verse 42, further down in the text, that she was 12 years old and which really meant that in this particular culture, the Jewish culture of this day, she had entered womanhood. She was no longer considered a child. And in the original language, the phrase little daughter, in this particular context, was a term of endearment. To put it in modern terms, Jairus said to Jesus, my baby girl is dying. She's almost gone. And if you don't come, she is not going to make it. This man was at the end of his rope. And which father here today would not willingly trade places with a suffering child, even an adult child? This is no doubt this man in this passage, he loves his 
baby girl. He'd take her place if he could, but he can't. If he's reached the end of his ability to do anything for her, he cannot save her, and he knows that she needs another Savior. She's too sick to move. He can't, she can't travel. He, she can't go to Jesus. And so Jairus says, I will bring Jesus to you. And verse 24 says, And Jesus went with him. I want to ask us fathers here today, whether you have teens in your home, kids in your home, grown adult children, two of the fathers in this room this morning, or would-be fathers, soon-to-be, hope-to-be fathers, are you bringing Jesus to your kids? Not are you bringing your kids to Jesus. Are you bringing Jesus to your children? Or are you living like you can be their Savior? Or that money can be their Savior? Or that a good education or a college degree can be their Savior? I know that we may not say these things in so many words, but don't our actions and our various emphases sometimes, often, say them all the same? That everything in life hinges on getting into the right school, getting the right degree, or learning the right trade, getting the right spouse. Friends, none of that can save our children. It may give them the American dream, but the American dream damns. It does not save. Fathers, we need to bring our children Jesus Christ. And you may be here this morning with some of your children who are near death. They're not like this little girl. They're not dying physically, but they're dead spiritually. In fact, they were born that way. Do you guys realize that every single one of us are spiritual stillborns? We're born dead in sin. Maybe you have a child that is already dead in sin and they're about to completely destroy their lives. Friends, find a way, somehow, some way, bring them Jesus. Press through the crowd. Get them Jesus. Are you like this desperate father today? We should be. And so next we see in this text, we we meet a a different lady, someone else, a new illustration, a desperate woman. Verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge, the King James Version says issue of blood, I prefer the word issue better, discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. This woman had to put, in plain English for us this morning, a female problem, basically a menstrual period that had gone on for 12 
years. And friends, if it makes you uncomfortable for, to hear me talk about a 12-year-long menstrual period, it should. Now imagine the predicament of this woman actually living it. Under the Levitical law, she was ceremonially unclean. Not only was she ostracized from the covenant community she, because of her impurity, but her condition would have rendered her childless. It would have rendered her unable to conceive children. And we do know from other Jewish writings at the time that men would often divorce wives who were barren. She lived a marginalized outcast life. This was, she was a pariah. <laughs> she, this was a physical, a social, a spiritual problem for this poor woman. And she was desperate to be cured. Verse 26 said that she had spent everything, everything that she had on physicians. We don't know how much it was. Was it a lot? Was it a little? Whatever the case, it was all that she had. She had spent it all on physicians but they only left her worse. And in this passage, we see just a glimpse of the limits of human ability. Doctors do all that they can, and then we hear them say, there's nothing more we can do. We've tried the conventional treatment. We've even tried the experimental treatment. But nothing has worked And of course, there are all those, always those televangelists and those fake preachers who promise healing if you just sow the right seed, they say. Put it on your credit card if you have to, they tell us. Meanwhile, they're the ones wearing Prada suits, living in million-dollar homes and flying jet airplanes. But Jesus is not like fallible doctors and fake healers, is he? This woman knew that there was something different about this new rabbi named Jesus, and she just had to get to him. Verse 27 says, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And here we see the extent of her desperate faith. If I can just touch his clothes, she thinks. He doesn't even have to touch me. He doesn't even have to look at me. If I can but just touch, Luke says in his version of the account, just the, the fringe of his garment, the hem of his garment, I will be healed. What about you this morning? Dear friends, do you have this kind of faith when you come to Jesus with your most desperate, pressing needs? I'm not talking about being laid on, on your cable bill or being a little short of a paycheck or your car needing new tires and, and you don't have the money to, to put new tires on your... I'm talking about being... I'm talking about deep and desperate needs like the salvation of an unbelieving spouse or a wayward child. 
I'm talking about deliverance from addictions that are wrecking your life or wrecking the life of someone that you love. I'm talking about freedom from chronic anxiety and crippling fear that our world is so 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 quick to just pour us on right pour on us right now. You've been on all the antidepressants. You've tried alcohol. You've tried therapy. But nothing is working. So what do we do? Here's what we do. We learn to cope. And friends, I'm concerned that Christians in the church today are getting too good at coping. And we aren't reaching out in desperate faith just to touch the hem of His garment like this woman. We're medicating ourselves into numbness. And we have forgotten that we have a living Savior who can meet our most desperate needs. And this is what this passage is really about, isn't it? It's not about the father. It's not about the little 12-year-old girl. It's not about the woman with the 12-year-long issue of blood. It's about a willing Savior. Verse 29 And immediately, now she's touched his his clothes. Immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Oh, she would have known. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. I think one of the translations say virtue had gone out from him. Immediately he turned to the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Who touched my garments? His disciples look at him as they commonly did. These poor guys. They look at him like he's crazy. They say, Jesus, you see, verse 31, the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched you? All these people. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came. In fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And Jesus senses in his divinity. That's always the driving force here. That's always the driving theme. Jesus, Son of God, Son of man. Fully God. Fully man. Jesus senses in his divinity that that someone has touched him in desperate faith. And he looks around for who it is. And of course his disciples are once again clueless. I think we are often the same way still today, aren't we? Just clueless. We can't see what Jesus is wanting to do in someone's life because we are so caught up in the chaos, the commotion that's surrounding us, surrounding Jesus, just like the disciples right here. But this woman was now totally, completely, fully healed of her impurity. 
Notice this favorite Markan word, immediately. And I told you when we started this series, the circle, every time Mark uses that word immediately. He used it quite a bit by now. Mark says, immediately the flow of blood dried up. This wasn't some sleight of hand miracle like those guys on TV. This was the real deal. And in trembling fear, she falls down at the feet of Jesus and just tells him everything. Lord, I, here's my story. I, need, I needed you. And I just thought if I could touch you, just, just your clothes, that I would be healed. And you know, Jesus, he didn't rebuke her, did he? He didn't chide her in any way for touching him, even though, let's not miss this detail, even though under Old Testament law, by touching him, she would have made him unclean. He wasn't bothered by her uncleanliness. He said to her, verse 34, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And now with her healed, her illustration accounted for, Mark brings us back to Jairus. So while Jesus was on his way to heal his baby girl, This woman shows up and interrupts this man's quest to bring Jesus to his daughter. But we have to know what happens to this little girl. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus, by the way. Jesus was still speaking. There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? These words, no doubt, hit this father like a wrecking ball. His baby girl was gone. His friends just said, leave Jesus alone. There's no point. It's too late. It's over. This was, as it were, that dreaded knock on the door in the middle of the night that no parent ever wants to get. And you find an officer there, or the sheriff, and he says, There's been an accident. Your son, your, your daughter, they did not make it. But brothers and sisters, this desperate father learned that day what we need to learn today, that Jesus is willing. He is always willing. Look at verse 37. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, this is Jairus, do not fear Only believe. Circle those five words. Do not 
fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, as you would expect, when a young, a young life has just been snuffed out. Weeping, people wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? Jesus is, this is a rebuke. Why are you so upset? This child is not dead but sleeping. And what did they do? They laughed. Verse 40, they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. Jesus ignores the naysayers. And he speaks directly to this father in his most painful moment, in his most painful, most dreaded experience of his life. And he says, do not fear, only believe. He takes his three inner circle of disciples and goes into this man's house and puts out the doubters. Friends, sometimes we need to put the doubters out of our lives, don't we? There will always be those who say the situation is too far gone. The marriage is dead. The child is gone. She'll never come back around. will always be those who scoff at the idea that Jesus can actually change things. Put those people out, friends, and get some people around you who know Jesus Christ, who know what He can do. He can save that son or that daughter from their homosexuality. He can deliver that person you love from their transgender confusion. Jesus Christ, the eternal divine Son of God, He is a willing Savior. And no one is beyond His saving, delivering, and healing grace. Do you believe that this morning? problem is, church, that we, we've, we've, we've become too accepting of our sin. Well, that's just the way we are. That's the life that He's chosen to live. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, He said to her, Talitha Kumi. By the way, that's strange, right, to us. It's transliterated. Aramaic. In other words, the words, the letters just get straight transliterated in the English. It means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And so here he is, the incarnate Son of God, saying to this desperate father whose hope was, you know, the hope was over. He had got to Jesus in time, but there was a distraction, there was an interruption, someone else needed him. And while he was healing another, his daughter died. But here he is, faithful and true, 
looking at this desperate father's daughter and he says, baby girl, get up. And immediately, verse 42, the girl got up. There it is again, immediately. Mark says he's not leaving any room for doubt that you know who Jesus is. He is the only one who can say to a little girl who is dead, get up. And immediately she gets up and he even says, she starts walking around. They were immediately, there it is again, overcome with amazement. And Jesus strictly charged them, verse 43, that no one should know about this. We, we could talk about that later, okay? What was, you know, Jesus often said, you know, just go, go back home and tell your family, tell your friends. We'll, we'll go there later. He said, tell, tell no one, but he said, give her something to eat. So great wonder filled this house. The original language here means, here's what it means in the, in the Greek, the New Testament. They were so overcome that they lost all mental composure. Friends, imagine the joy. This is jaw-on-the-floor kind of shocking joy. There are people in this sanctuary today. I know you. There are people here. Like this little girl, by all accounts, you should be dead. The doctors left you with little to no hope. The diagnosis was grand. The accident that you were in should have killed you. The lifestyle that you were living should have landed you in jail or in the grave. But here you are. Friends, I don't know what your desperation is this morning. We carry things in our hearts that no one knows about. Not your spouse, not your parents, not your children, not your pastor, not your dearest, closest friend. They're here. They're deep here. I don't know what it is. It may not be a dying child, but it might be a spiritually dead child. It may, you may not have an issue of blood, but friends, you have an issue nonetheless. Whatever your particular desperation is, I want to tell you this morning, Jesus is a willing Savior. And I don't want to imply And neither is Mark here in this text. You know, I don't want to imply that Jesus will heal all of our diseases and all of our sicknesses. And uh, this is some guarantee that he will do everything that we ask him to do. That's not the purpose of the miracles in this passage, friends. The purpose of the miracles here and the miracles in every other passage is to point us They're signs. Signs point you somewhere. And they point us beyond themselves to a fully divine Savior who uses our desperate situations 
to show His faithfulness and His glory in our lives. And so now, dear friends, we, we must return to that desperate condition that we mentioned at the start, that desperate condition that we all have, sin. Everything that we see in this passage, all of it, look at the entire chapter of Mark 5, legion, the death of this little girl, the issue of blood, all of it is because of sin. Sin brought sickness, suffering, and death into our world that God created in sinless perfection. He said, Genesis 1.31, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was no death, there was no suffering, there was no sickness, there were no demons here possessing people. There were no little girls dying at 12 years of age. There were no women with issues of blood. Sin brought all of that. Rebellion brought all of that. And every one of us here today, and every man, woman, boy, and girl ever conceived in their mother's womb have the most desperate condition of all. We are sinners who stand justly condemned before a holy God. But you know, I worry that most of the time we don't rightly feel the desperation of our sin. Myself included. Far too many Christians believe like the secular culture that we are basically good people. Yeah, there are always those who might steal, rape, or murder. But most are decent people. That's what we think. And friends, that's because the church in America today has pretty much altogether abandoned the doctrine of total depravity. That every single one of us, from womb to tomb, apart from Christ, is corrupt to the core of every part of our being. And it is only by God's common grace that we are not as bad as we could be. But we are all, by nature, sinners to the fullest extent. Don't look at Hitler or bin Laden or your worst political enemy and say, well, I'm not as bad as they are. Because right here, oh yes, you are. There are no good people. We are all desperate, ruined in our sin, and we cannot save ourselves any more than this 12-year-old little girl could save herself any more than her father, desperate as he was, could save her. This woman with this issue of blood for 12 years couldn't save herself. And no matter how good we think that we are, neither can we. Friends, if you close your eyes in death thinking that you're a good person, you're going to wake up in hell. And so this morning, right where you are, you don't have to move an inch. What has to move is this right here. I call you to acknowledge 
your sin, which has separated you from God, friend, you will be judged if you do not repent. You must turn from your sin and cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ who is willing. And I want to speak to us here who are believers. This is probably, you know, probably most of us. As Christians, we need to get desperate about the sin that we tolerate in our lives, our worldliness, our prayerlessness, our lack of zeal for God's Word, our casual approach to God in worship. Friends, this isn't a coffee house. This isn't Starbucks. This isn't the, lo- the local coliseum where you go to see Backstreet Boys. This is a place of, the, of worship, of the Most High God. And we're casual about it. Oh, that God would give us hearts desperate to be rid of anything and everything that displeases Him. So I want, just like this father today, I want to bring Christ to you. In the desperation and in the commotion of our lives, and say that if you would just reach out, if we, myself included, if we would just reach out and touch the cross of Calvary through repentance and faith, our sin-sick souls will be healed. How desperately, friend, do you need the Lord this morning? Let's pray.